5 through 7, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. I'll be reading from the uh, New King James Version. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Well, I know all of you had a wonderful night of sleep last night, right? You know, I'm certain many of us can relate to this image this morning. Because the end of daylight saving time for us, or at least for me, uh, resulting in this one hour of lost sleep in the spring should be classified as one of the seven deadly sins. <laughs> and how you deal with uh, this sleep loss that we have every spring uh, may vary to a large extent. Maybe some of you deal with daylight saving time by trying to justify your failings. And you look at it through the lens of, all right, this is why I'm not accomplishing very much. Or maybe you deal with daylight saving time by finding uh, something positive about it, especially for those of you who still have clocks that are manually set. Maybe you deal with daylight saving time by putting it in a proper perspective, as in losing that hour doesn't compared to the hours you lose doing much less noble things. Or maybe you deal with daylight saving time by blaming the real enemy, the government who is stealing our time. Or maybe you're like me, and daylight saving time just doesn't make sense anymore, and this is how you define daylight saving time. You know, according to legend, a Native American once was told the reasoning behind daylight saving time, and he responded by saying, only a fool would believe that you could cut the foot off the top of a blanket, sew it to the bottom, and have a longer blanket. And I like his reasoning. See, daylight saving time reminds me that there are some things that I just can't wrap my mind around. There are some things that I just can't understand. And today, as we return to our study of the seven attributes that we're to add to our faith, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, we come to a term that I thought I knew, but after studying it for some time, came to the realization that it means much more than I thought. And that's the term godliness. Godliness is the fourth virtue that we are to add to our faith according to this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. And throughout the years, godliness has often been defined as God-likeness or trying to imitate God, particularly when it comes to our conduct. And while the Bible does advocate for such God-likeness, while the Bible does advocate for us to be like God, I believe there's more to godliness than that. As I studied this term over the past couple of weeks, I was exposed to a variety of uses, nuances, applications 
of the word godliness. And so what I want to do today is, is present it in four ways that maybe we don't normally talk about godliness so that we can have a better and more complete understanding of what it is we are to add to our faith. And let's begin here with the fact that godliness is a mindset. You see, more often than not, when we talk about godliness, we're talking about conduct, we're talking about behavior. But we really need to understand that the word here has to do with a mindset, with an attitude. The Greek term translated godliness in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 is eusebia. The one word that is consistently cited as a definition for eusebia, other than godliness, is piety. Piety. So godliness equals piety. Now you understand godliness, right? Because if you're like me, though, you hear the word piety and you're like, oh, that's a great sounding word. That's a great church word. But I don't really have a great grasp of what piety means. I can use it in a sentence and you can think I'm smart, but I don't really understand piety all that well. See, in modern English, piety is another word for reverence. Now think about that. Godliness and piety are synonymous when it comes to the Greek term we're looking at, and piety really means reverence. That's a little different than conduct and behavior. Reverence is a mindset. Reverence is an attitude. Reverence is a posture even, a posture related to the way you think. What I found interesting is that godliness is more than just striving to be like God. Godliness is the appropriate respect and reverence towards God that we are to have. I like the way the Truth For Today commentary described this term, this Greek term eusebia, from 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, the, the word that is translated godliness is oriented more toward disposition than it is toward action. It signifies a presence of mind where God is always near. It is a pious frame of mind that draws him into every realm of life. And I want you to think about this. This, this emphasis on a respectful mindset toward God really becomes apparent when you start examining other passages that employ the term godliness in Scripture. So, for instance, if you, for instance, if you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, you'll see that we are instructed to pray for those in worldly positions of authority so that we may lead lives that are godly and dignified, according to the English Standard Version. The New King James Version will refer to it as lives marked by godliness and reverence. It's very fascinating to me that when godliness is referenced in 2 Timothy chapter 2 as an aspect of our lives, it's paired with either dignity or reverence. Dignity or reverence. Those are mindsets that affect behavior. Godliness is associated with dignity and reverence in 2 Timothy chapter 2 as our standard of living. 
And then if you go over to Titus chapter 2 and verse 12, we learn that by the grace of God we can renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so that we can live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, I really like the way the New King James handles this passage because instead of saying self-controlled, upright, and godly, it says soberly, righteously, and godly. Here, godliness gets associated with sobriety. And sobriety speaks to our mind. You see, in Titus chapter 2, godliness is associated with sober-mindedness as our standard of living. And my point is that while godliness does relate to what we do, it also relates to how we think. Therefore, it's much more than conduct. It's, it's also a mindset. And I think if we reflect, if we reflect back on a particular story in the Old Testament, that aspect of godliness gets manifested in a way we don't normally notice. In Leviticus chapter 10, we read about the sin of Nadab and Abihu. Now, these are the children of Aaron, the priest. They themselves are priests. And what happens with Nadab and Abihu, as you probably have heard many times before, is that they offer unauthorized fire before the Lord in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. The consequence of their actions is that they are destroyed. And so what we end up doing is we look at the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, and we say, hey, this is a call to right behavior. This is a call to doing things the right way. And I'm not dismissing that understanding or that application, but I want you to look in Leviticus chapter 10, I want you to look at God's analysis of the situation, God's analysis of Nadab and Abihu's sin. It appears in verse 3, where God, through Moses, said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. See, when God reflected on the sin of Nadab and Abihu, he indicated that there was a bigger problem than them, than them just doing the wrong thing. God's assessment of Nadab and Abihu and focused on their mindset toward him rather than their actions. They failed to sanctify him. They failed to glorify him. They failed to hold him in the right perspective. They lacked godliness in terms of the reverence and respect that is due the Lord. See, we focus on whether or not they did the right thing, but it appears God focused on whether or not they had the right attitude. The, right, the, the wrong attitude toward God for Nadab and Abihu led to the wrong actions. And I want you to think, some of us here today are failing to add godliness, not because we don't do the right things, but because we don't possess the right attitude. Maybe you fulfill all the mandates of Scripture, but you do so grudgingly. Maybe you're here attending this worship service so you can check that box that's a requirement of your discipleship. 
Maybe you lent your voice to a couple of songs this morning. You bowed your head during a couple of prayers. You dropped your check in the box out front and you consumed that piece of styrofoam we call bread along with that lukewarm juice and you checked your box. You did all that unconsciously. You did all that without giving God your attention because you're only here to get credit for doing what you're supposed to do. You're here because you have to be here, not because you want to be here. That's not godliness. Godliness is dutiful obedience born out of reverence and affection for the one you're obeying. And if you're just going through the motions, then guess what? You need to add godliness in its truest form. Because godliness is a mindset of reverence and respect. But we can't overlook the fact that godliness is also a lifestyle. One theological dictionary describes eusebia, which is the Greek term from which we get godliness, One theological dictionary describes it as a reverence for God, but explains that such reverence manifests itself through a life which is morally good. In other words, when you you hold God in the right reverence and the right respect, it affects the way you live. This is where the conduct side of godliness does come into play. This is where the concept of God-likeness that we typically associate with godliness comes into play. Because God is good, as Scripture repeatedly declares. And if I hold Him in the proper perspective, if I revere and respect and love Him, then I want to be like Him. It's born out of the right mindset, but it affects our lifestyle. And here's the thing. I've referenced how godliness is associated with piety. I found it interesting as I was looking at what piety means in English that the Cambridge English Dictionary defines piety as a strong belief in a religion that is shown in the way someone lives. In other words, it might be the right mindset. That might be where it starts at. But it's going to be evident through the way you live. Your correct mindset is going to manifest itself through your correct living. So there is a visible element to godliness. When we talk about godliness as a lifestyle, what I want you to understand is that godliness is meant to be seen. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4, Paul gave instructions to Timothy regarding how Christians should take care of their family members, particularly widows. Listen to what he says. This is 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4. He says, If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, the believing children or the believing grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Paul instructed believing children and believing grandchildren to show godliness. And if you go back in the same letter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul instructed women to adorn themselves, not with braided hair, 
not with gold or pearls or expensive apparel, but rather with good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So in one passage in 1 Timothy, Paul says, show godliness. In another passage, he essentially says, wear godliness. Your godliness, your profession of godliness will be evident because it will be seen through your good works. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, is repeatedly saying your godliness can and must be visible in your lifestyle. This got me to thinking about a character we're introduced to in Acts chapter 10. If you go back to Acts chapter 10, we're introduced to a guy named Cornelius right at the beginning. In verse 2 of that chapter, Cornelius is identified as a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, or to the people, and prayed continually to God. It's interesting, that term translated devout comes from the same root word as our term for godliness. So Luke essentially is describing Cornelius as a godly man. And he's describing Cornelius as a godly man before Cornelius received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 10 and verse 44, and before he was baptized for the forgiveness of his sins in verse 48 of that chapter. Now, how could Luke make such a declaration? How could Luke say that Cornelius is godly or devout? Same root word. How could he say that about Cornelius before Cornelius is a Christian? It's it's because before Cornelius is even in the water, he's giving evidence. He's producing and showing evidence of his reverence for God. It's specifically stated there in verse 2. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. His reverence for God is visible through what he's doing. His mindset is manifesting itself through his lifestyle. Some of us here today are failing to add godliness because we're not allowing our faith to be visible in every aspect of our lives. Some of us are trying to compartmentalize our spirituality. We're trying to say, I'm going to let faith affect my life here, but not so much over here. So we bear the fruits of the Spirit whenever we're in spiritual environments like this. But as soon as we have to be in some secular space like work or school or I-85 during rush hour, the fruits of patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control go out the window. And we're willing to employ gracious speech that is seasoned with salt when we're communicating with people in person, but when you give us the anonymity of social media, those rules no longer apply. Why is that? we're compartmentalizing. 
And we're willing to not forsake the assembly most of the year, but when it's time for that particular sport to start up or a particular opportunity arises, that policy goes out the window. We're compartmentalizing. We're saying, I'm going to let my faith be visible here, but not visible there. I'm going to pick and choose when I show my reverence for God. And it doesn't work that way. That's not how God designed it. I probably just stepped on a whole lot of toes. It's not my objective to anger or offend, but it is my objective to get you to consider what the visible elements of lifestyle, your lifestyle, communicates about your faith. If all someone ever does is know you through Facebook, through the words you post on Twitter, or through the images you put up on Instagram, will they see your reverence for God? If all someone knows of you is the person you are at work, or the student you are at school, or the driver you are going down Highway 20 trying to get to the mall on Friday night at 5 o'clock, will they know you're a Christian? See, our lifestyle communicates our faith. Our lifestyle particularly communicates whether we revere and respect God or not. And if our lifestyle lacks the evidence of good works that are mentioned by Paul to Timothy, or they lack the visible demonstration of our devoutness as is seen in the life of Cornelius, then there might just be a godliness problem that we need to address. Because godliness isn't just a mindset, it is also a lifestyle. And a third thing I want you to understand about godliness is that it is a pursuit. Godliness is a pursuit. In other words, godliness is not a genetic trait. You are not born with a predisposition toward godliness. Now, don't get me wrong. Everyone enters this world innocent. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 14, Let the little children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Everyone is born innocent. But that's not the same as entering this world godly. Because godliness is more than godlikeness, as I've already pointed out. Think about it. Under normal circumstances, innocence fades away, and individuals must not only learn the difference between right and wrong, but they must also learn to pursue right. We have to teach children to make the right choices. We have to teach children to behave. We have to teach children what God expects of them. That involves learning. That involves pursuit. Consider the way godliness is depicted in the pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul instructed Timothy to pursue, among other things, godliness. Pursue godliness. I took this terminology straight out of the Bible. 
Now, I find this instruction quite significant, that Paul's going to tell Timothy you have to pursue godliness. You know why I find it interesting? If you were to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that's just three verses ahead of the passage we're studying from 2 Peter today. Just three verses ahead of the point in which we're told to add to our faith godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us, that the Lord has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. As one commentator said, pointed out, Christ has given believers everything they need to be godly. And yet believers must pursue godliness. Paul's point is that godliness doesn't find you. You find godliness. It's an intentional Effortful pursuit. And I think that's why Paul will also spend some time in his first letter to Timothy telling Timothy to train for godliness. That's 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. And he goes on in verse 8 of that same chapter to explain that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So not only does Paul instruct Timothy to pursue godliness, but he also instructs him to train for godliness. That's the terminology of exercise. Now I know it's March the... Um, Something, all that exercise you promised to do on January 1st has gone out the window by now. But what about your spiritual exercise? You see, Paul is telling Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy that godliness necessitates that you work it out. That you engage in some form of training and exercise that will promote and even produce the godliness that God has called us to have. Paul loved athletic metaphors. It's quite possible he even was around in Corinth when, when the uh, Isthmian games were played there. Now, you have to understand, in this time period, the Olympics weren't the only athletic games going on. There were actually a significant uh, athletic event of that caliber every year. Four different ones that occurred in the first century. One of those took place in Corinth, and it's believed that Paul may have been in Corinth for those games, and that's what he was set up with uh, Aquila and Priscilla uh, uh, constructing tents for the athletes who were coming to town so they had somewhere to stay. Paul loved athletic metaphors. He would use the, the wrestling metaphor in Ephesians. He would use the boxing metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but his most famous athletic metaphor was always running. He loved to compare the life of a Christian to a race. Most notably in 1 Corinthians 9. And there's unique, something unique that he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Beginning in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete, verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 9, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul was aware of the fact that professional athletes in the first century were expected to go into a minimum of 10 months of training prior to the games in which they competed. And if it was evident that they had not completed their training, they would be disqualified from the games. And so Paul viewed the Christian life as something that necessitated training. And here's the thing. You can either train or you can try, but you can't do both. Some of us are approaching the Christian life as something we're going to try at. You know what trying means? Trying to do something refers to our efforts to do something we've never done before with no particular outcome expected and no particular preparation conducted. Training, on the other hand, training to do something refers to our efforts to prepare ourselves to do something at which we intend to succeed. So you can train or you can try. You can train to run a marathon, which means I'm going to complete the necessary exercises and the, ne- the necessary um, training to accomplish a marathon. Or I can try to run a marathon, which suggests that I'm just going to show up and see what happens. Some of us here today are trying at godliness when we should be training at godliness. We're not intentionally engaging in the activities that will develop godliness in our lives. Some of us aren't studying the Bible. We might be sitting in the back of a Bible class on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights listening to someone teach from the Bible, but we're not actively engaging with the Word on our own. Some of us aren't praying. Oh, we might be here and we might be bowing our heads when a prayer is being said publicly, but we're not communicating with God on our own. Some of us aren't serving. Some of us aren't growing our godliness through our good works. And we're not engaging with other people and doing things for other people in service of the kingdom. Some of us aren't training And we need to add godliness to the equation. Because if you're not in pursuit of godliness, if you're not training for godliness, then you're ultimately disqualifying yourself from receiving the victor's reward, as Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And that brings me to one last thought as I wrap this up. And that is that godliness is a precaution. Now, my choice of terminology for this point may initially be misleading and even offensive to some of you, because when we think of a precaution, we tend to think of something that is beneficial and advisable, yet optional. For instance, we talk about washing our hands. It's a precaution. You may not need to wash your hands to avoid getting sick, because maybe you didn't get any germs on your hands, but you don't know. Can you see the germs? And so we communicate the need to wash your hands, regardless of whether it's pandemic time or not, 
Wash your hands after you go to the restroom. Wash your hands before you eat. Wash your hands when you come in from the outside. Because guess what? We don't know if you have germs on those hands, and we don't want you to get sick or to get someone else sick. So we do it as a precaution. But still, a great many of us view washing our hands as an option. I don't have to do it. There's no law making me do it. If I walk out of that bathroom and I don't wash my hands, I'm not getting arrested. So therefore, it's not mandatory. And so for me to use the language of precaution with godliness can seem a little minimizing. But I choose this term, or I I chose this term, after reading the definition of a precaution. A precaution is a measure taken in advance to prevent something dangerous, unpleasant, or inconvenient from happening. So a precaution is a preventative measure taken in advance in order to avoid a negative consequence. That's why I've associated godliness with a precaution. And I did so because of the language of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7-14. through 14. Just two chapters after our Faith Plus text. Peter says, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then picking up in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What Peter says is that the godly are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. The ungodly are waiting for judgment and destruction. Thus godliness, or, or godly living, this mindset that manifests itself in a lifestyle it's a precaution it's a preventative measure in the sense that it ensures that christ's return will be a day of redemption for you and not a day of judgment see some of us here today are going to be surprised when christ returns surprised in the sense of what matthew 7 says that not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven Some of us are going to be surprised because we think we're godly. We think we're doing all the right things. But if you don't have the right mindset, the reverent and respectful mindset that this term requires, and if you're not manifesting the visible attributes of godliness, if you're not, if you're busy, compartmentalizing your faith and there are points in your life at which it's not even evident that you are a Christian or if you're refusing to train for godliness then you just might be surprised at which side Christ has you stand on on that day of separation this morning as we look at our fourth term in this faith plus series We do so with the intent of challenging ourselves 
challenging ourselves to add godliness. This morning, if you need to add godliness to your faith, we invite you to do so while together we stand and sing. Why keep Jesus with